Welcome to the What the Elwood Podcast, the podcast that's all about Longwood athletics. We talk with players, coaches, staff, alums, who knows? The goal is to bring Longwood and its stories closer to you straight from the source. I'm your host, Sam Hovan, and we're going to get nerdy today. With the Big South Softball Tournament here, I had a chance to sit down and dive into pitching with some serious subject matter experts. Big South Pitcher of the Year, Sidney Backstrom, who also happens to be a physics major and a math minor, head coach, Dr. Megan Brown, and Dr. Tim Coffey, an expert in biomechanics. How do pitches move? What are pitchers doing to adjust in a game? How do you even learn to throw a certain pitch? Could you design the perfect pitching motion? I asked questions like this and a ton more, and I learned a lot in the latest episode. So strap in and enjoy the ride in the latest episode of the What the Elwood podcast. And again, thank you guys for joining me. We're, I'm really excited for this one because this is a little different than what we've normally done. Uh, we have three extremely, extremely smart people here in the room with me today, two doctors and a physics major with a math minor. So, I mean, I think that's really fun. And one of the things that I want to talk about that I've never really explored is a potentially nerdy topic where we're talking about the physics of throwing and pitching and specifically as it relates to a softball. Um, so I want to start with you, Dr. Coffey. You have such a, such a wide wealth of experience, biomechanics and all those different areas. What is something that fascinates you about pitching? Or do you have anything specific that fascinates you about pitching? So I think the part that interests me the most when we talk about pitching is how you can put so many different spins and techniques on a ball and what it can make the ball do. Um, I think we see with Major League Baseball pitchers and softball pitchers just changing how they grip, changing how they move, and all of a sudden you get new pitches every year um, just from the way a pitcher moves their arms or changes their grip um, because that physics right changes, whether it's the Magnus effect that impacts the spin or something else, and all of a sudden you get a ball that moves completely differently than what you've seen previously. And is that something that you, Coach Brown, or you, Sydney, have ever done where you've experimented and said, what if I shift my fingers a little bit? Yeah, so with actually one of my main pitches, my off-speed curve, that actually came from me struggling with my normal curveball when I was in high school. And I was with my dad, and he's like, you know, just just try, like, over-exaggerating it, like, put it, like, cup your hand a lot, get a lot of spin on it, and the ball would go slow. And I was like, Dad, it's going way too slow. Like, this isn't a good curveball. He's like, just keep doing it. I'm sure, like, it'll come back to you at some point. And at one point... He was just like, well, what if we make it like a different pitch? So that's when my off-speed was born. <laughs> and now I use it basically every game. What about you, Coach Brown? Obviously, experience on the coaching side of it, but also as a former pitcher yourself. I think this, that's kind of the fun with it. Um, I think a lot of times young pitchers, they kind of get, this is how you hold a drop ball. It's how you hold a rise ball. And that's, you know, like – gospel like this is the only way you can do it and when you look at the different sizes of hands and strengths and we're forever even at this time of year sometimes tinkering with you know how can we get a little bit better hand placement on the ball can we grab a seam a little bit better can we have a little bit better hand placement for more strength and power at release can we add a little bit of speed or take some speed off um, by making an adjustment in the depth of it in your hand so it's something you always play with uh, as a pitcher Every once in a while playing overseas, you would kind of get a ball that was basically slick. And if the weather was cold or if it was rainy, um, I've actually changed grips for a pitch during a game just so I could get a better grip on it and not 
basically throw the thing down the middle. So you can play with it. Um, I think p- your best pitchers kind of have a little bit of a fluidity with their grips. They'll kind of play with them and be willing to manipulate stuff because like, I just feel like I can get a little more on it if I do this. So it's not so set in stone, but there's a lot of fun. You can kind of start getting very creative very quickly when you start playing with it. Does it ever make you feel like you're just a mad scientist in a lab? Daily. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Dr. Coffee? If you could get a pitching lab, so to speak, what would be some things you would want to experiment with? Um, I think some of the things I would look at at a pitching lab is looking at some arm angles, um, looking at kind of the spin rate and spin axis um, that a ball comes off of, um, but also looking at the push-off. I think oftentimes we focus a lot of time on the arm motion and hand motion, but when we talk about significant power output, you look a lot at really the foot placement and the amount of power that the pitcher can drive from their legs um, as they're kind of pitching the ball. Um, when we look at, you know, baseball pitchers and, you know, that trying to hit 100 miles per hour, um, a lot of the, the formula that goes into it is how much they're squatting and deadlifting um, because a lot of that power comes from their legs. Um, and so you see the same thing in softball with that drive forward. Um, so having kind of a force plate that you could put, catch people, you know, as they push off and then also look at that, all the other mechanics that come with it. Interesting, actually, this was something I wanted to ask about. You mentioned the power that you generate as a pitcher, yet it doesn't seem like everybody just has the same standard, I must throw this way. People have different deliveries. We've seen it this year and across a variety of pitchers in different teams, both in baseball and softball. How do you come up with those different kinds of deliveries? Does it really matter, or does it all do the same thing? Uh, I feel like the delivery just kind of goes with the pitcher, like, they kind of work on things and they'll just do what feels right for them and kind of tweak that because I know I have kind of a unique start to my pitch, or at least I used to, and we actually had to change it this year to be able to get more power in my legs. And now I'm consistently throwing harder than I did last year, so it's definitely helped. What about you? Yeah, I think I think it is very personal um, to the pitcher. I think when you look at different sizes, different strengths, different strengths in certain areas, um, if you have a pitcher that's very strong in their legs, but maybe not so much in their glutes or their calves, you're going to have different um, joint angles that you have to use. If you have a pre-existing injury, uh, sometimes you'll have to take those things into account. But it's similar to uh, when you see you know, hitters, they'll start very different from one another, but there comes a point where we all kind of get back to, at a certain point, all your elite players are, are pretty close to one another. So some of the the flair is more of a, a style points for the pitcher, but then there come back, comes back to a point where it's like, all right, that looks great, but we don't get points for artistic interpretation. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to need to bend our knees <laughs> if we're going to use our legs. <laughs> so we kind of break it down sometimes even that simplistically of, you know, having them stand flat-footed and like, all right, stand, you know, put your weight on your heels and jump in the air, and they can't even clear their cleats from the dirt. And I'm like, okay, so we need to, where do we need to have weight and, and those pieces? So you kind of have to build it in stages, but it gives them some freedom to feel like themselves and to get a good rhythm as they come off because that's another piece of if they get stuck in their load. They can load really great and get really deep, but there's a point of diminishing return where they're not strong enough to overcome the, the negative angles. So once you get them to that point where it's like, all right, this is too low, this is too high, kind of the Goldilocks routine, you know, was was too much of one or the other 
and then they find that really sweet spot where their body functions at the highest way, way possible. Now, you use a term that I want to make sure everybody kind of knows what you're talking about. You talk about a load and g getting your load. What is that referring to? Break it down like I'm five. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in the simplest terms is, you know, when you go to jump up in the air, similar to what we're talking about of, well, what do you do if you want to jump really high in the air? And everyone, they bend their knees and they squat lower to the ground. And that's how every, you know, if you ask anyone, like, all right, jump as high as you can in the air, that's the first thing they're going to do. And a lot of pitchers, they don't realize that they actually just kind of bend over at their waist. They don't actually ever bend down in their knees and use their legs as if they are jumping off the rubber. Um, one of the things we talk about is you need to get all of you all the way to the front of the circle in one step. So how, there's not going to just be a stepping out. You know, there's eight feet there to cover. So we really do want to jump off of the rubber. So that's kind of the, the way we actually talk about it in the bullpen. Makes sense. Dr. Coffey, she meant, Coach Brown mentioned all the different moving pieces that have to go together. So, you know, the, the glutes, the hamstrings, the quads, the calves, all that. How does that look in a biomechanic setting of how you want to generate power through a pitch? I mean, I think what's really interesting when we talk about human movement is that that looks different for almost every athlete. Um, and it's really interesting when you have, you know, sport coaches or sport performance coaches that focus on these are the exact mechanics you have to have for ultimate performance. And what we find is that that's not necessarily true, that that may work on average or you may want to work on particular things. Um, but, you know, using a good example is Michael Johnson, who you know, former Olympic sprinter, who you know, his running style was so different than everybody else's. It was straight up, but he was still beating everybody else. Um, and I think that sometimes as a, we talk about changing an individual's mechanics, we have to be really careful about not changing too much because their own biology, their own muscle structure, their own ligament structure is different for every individual. And so, yes, we can talk about the you know, stretch reflex and bending individuals and making sure you bend your knees to actually be able to jump. But for some individuals, they may need to bend their knees to a different angle than others to generate the same amount of power. Um, and that's just based on different anthropometric measurements, you know, different quad strengths or, you know, all those sorts of things, which makes it really, it makes it very challenging, but also very fun when you talk about kind of each individual does jump differently. Um, and it's been really fun to look at, there was a study done a number of years ago looking at long distance runners and looking at who didn't get injured because they, the idea was, hey, we find these runners that don't get injured, we want to have everybody run exactly like them. And what they found is the individuals that didn't get injured actually had a whole lot more variability in how they ran. And so the, the idea was they actually didn't wear themselves out because their mechanics changed as they ran. Uh, versus those runners that had exact, solid, identical mechanics the entire time basically wore out um, and saw more injuries than those that had more variability in how they ran. It was almost like they were putting the stress points <laughs> under a maximum load for longer. Interesting. Is that something where you try to – can you empirically measure then and find the optimum spots for a particular person if you say, okay, I'm this tall, I weigh this much, and I go through some tests that you do? I think it'd be really difficult. Okay. Like, I, I think the idea is, sure, yeah, I could, <laughs> I could do this. Um, I think oftentimes what it is, it's a lot of trial and error. And it says, okay, yes, we can put an individual on a force plate 
and we can have them jump and look at the force production that they're able to generate off the force plate. And then we can try something else in their mechanics and then also measure, hey, does force production increase? Or, hey, we can go through a strength and conditioning routine and see which of these is actually going to help this individual generate more power and see it. But a lot of it is trial and error because you just, you don't know how an individual is going to respond or what compliance is going to look like with a strength and conditioning routine and all those sorts of things can impact what that final output looks like. For you, Sydney, what are some things that you have found in your career that have, or principles maybe that you've used to help increase your control, endurance, different things like that? So with the control, it's really just repetition, uh, making sure you have good focus on where you want the ball to go, making sure you practice kind of the same way and know you can make the adjustments. Because I know, <clears throat> like if I'm in a game, I usually start out like, okay, throw it hard. That's usually what works. But then sometimes I get tired. I'm like, okay, ball's not going where I want to anymore, so I have to make the adjustment. And normally I start focusing more on spin, and that's how it gets me better control, is I have to make those adjustments mid-game. But really, control is just repetitions. How do you make sure it's good practice? Because you could repeat the same mistake over and over. Wouldn't that be a problem? Yeah, so you have to know if you're doing something wrong. So obviously having someone else there definitely helps. <laughs> doing film on yourself helps. But most of the time you know if you're doing something wrong because the ball is normally not going where you want it to go. So you're like, okay, ball's not going where I want it. What can I fix? And that's where the trial and error aspect comes in. You're like, okay, let's try fixing my hand position. If that doesn't work, uh, you try maybe fixing something with your lower half. And it's really just trial and error from there. As a physics major, do you ever have things that you think about maybe a little bit differently because you deal with aerodynamics and fluids and motion and different stuff like that? I think it especially affects me when I think about getting power on the ball because obviously getting lower in your legs will help you get more power. But we talk about getting a load in your arm as well, which basically gives you more torque in your arm to be able to pull it down and get more power. So I think... Just a lot of torque, a lot of power. <laughs> Coach Brown, when a pitcher comes to you at the collegiate level, so they've gone through, they have, they have gone through a lot of practice to get to that point, how much do you try to just say, let's work with what we have here and make small adjustments versus maybe a wholesale change? You, you see sometimes in a basketball, for example, they'll change a player's shooting form and it will be a long process. How much do you tinker with a pitcher's delivery? It kind of depends on where they start coming in. Uh, but honestly, one of the first things we do with all of our pitchers when they come in is we do a mechanical clean because there are certain things. Every pitcher is very different. That, that is without a doubt. However, there are things that have been kind of proven out in our sport that if you continue to do these, either you've kind of peaked out as far as you're not going to be able to get any more movement, speed, control, whatever, if you continue in this fashion, or – there's also the component of you can potentially have an overuse injury where you see a mechanical flaw and you're like, okay, this is going to lead to an injury if we train at a college level, which is a kind of a big step when they come from high school to from practicing maybe two or three days a week to you're throwing for three hours, six days a week. So there's a big difference as you up your training load. Um, and there's also a lot of, there has been some research of when you increase a level, there is a higher risk of injury. So making sure that we're, protecting them 
with that. But we have kind of a system that we use um, for our pitchers that we put everyone through. Uh, we have I've been using this system for about six or seven years now, and when the data runs out, typically pitchers gain about three to five miles an hour their first year, and I've seen seven to nine over the course of three years. What about you, Sydney? What was it like going through that program? <laughs> uh, it was, it was uh, <laughs> definitely hard in the start, and I remember the first couple of weeks, she's like, okay, this is what we're going to be doing today, and we we're looking at all, all the sheets, of, like all the things we have to do, and we're just like, oh, man, that's a lot. <laughs> And we're in the middle of it. We're like, kind of tired here, coach. She's like, just get through it. <laughs> have you seen benefits, though? Yes, definitely. I feel like I have better endurance during the games, and obviously my speeds have gone up this year. What's your top speed? Top speed is 68. 68? Yeah. Wow. I was going to ask you, Dr. Coffee, as somebody who kind of deals a lot with this, what would be something you would want to ask a pitcher like Sydney if you got the question to just sit down and say, hey, I want to know about this? I think the, you know, talking to Sydney, Sydney, we were talking earlier about kind of just the spins of it. And I think for me is understanding like how, like, and she talked about earlier about developing pitches is how a pitcher develops their pitches and how they play with it. Um, I think there's a, it was an article I was reading the other day uh, with Trevor Bauer, who's a pitcher for the Dodgers. Um, and his dad is a chemical engineer. And he was like, I think he was, undergrad he was physics or engineering or something along those lines um and so he talked about taking the scientific method into effect of when he was developing his a couple of his pitches and how he you know a couple months he was going to you know develop it and all of a sudden he would change his grip and see what was the impact and so to me that would be one of the cool things to be able to talk with a pitcher to be like well how'd you develop that like what went into it how'd you try it out there's what was the positives and negatives of it what do you think sydney well <laughs> what was that like? Uh, I think starting off, you know that, well, to make a ball move, one half of the ball has to go faster than the other half of the ball. So I think what we think is like, okay, well, how do we do that? We know the ball has to spin this direction. We know it has to spin faster. So what kind of grip on it? What kind of, like, how can I move my wrist to make it go that direction? And I know we worked on my rise ball, like, in the fall, because the way I used to throw it, I would hold it a certain way and I would move my wrist in a certain way that it would actually hurt when I threw it. So in the fall, we had to develop a new way of throwing my rise to where it didn't hurt anymore and to where it would have better and later break on it. Um, and we've basically just changed the grip on it and threw it more similar to a fastball, really. I think it's interesting to hear even talking about it. I mean, how do you decide what pitches you mentioned going back even into high school and learning a pitch where you were working with your dad? How do you decide which pitches you're going to be able to throw? Or how do you decide, or, or how do you even develop and say, this one's so much better than this one? Uh, I think it starts off like it just feels good when you start throwing it. Obviously, not every pitch is going to feel good <laughs> as soon as you start it. But the more you work on it, the more consistently you're able to throw it where you want to. And... I think with my off-speed curve especially, um, we started throwing that in high school and it was kind of a, hey, let's use this to fix your other pitch. But now this, this off-speed curve is way better than most of my other pitches. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's just for me trying to, like having so much focus on it, saying like, all right, let me just throw this as hard as I can. And it just worked. What about... Um 
I know, Coach, we've talked about a couple different times. You've had some experience pitching at the highest of levels and the professional levels. And we talked about what is the difference between those pitchers at the highest level of softball and even at the collegiate or the high school level? What separates them? Somebody like, say, Jenny Finch. Well, as someone who's played against Jenny Finch, um, <laughs> back in the day, I'm dating myself a little bit too. But one of the biggest things, and we talk about this with our team, is they have an extremely clear understanding of the edges of their ability. And they operate what we term at a 10. Like, what is your 10? What is your best effort? And more specifically, how is that effort channeled? Because people have a lot of great effort, but we'll talk, like, it's misplaced. They'll, they'll put it in the wrong body part. So the simple version is you see a hitter at the plate, and they swing as hard as they can, but they look at the third base coach while they do it, so they'll never see the ball. So your effort is excellent but it's misplaced. It's in your head instead of in your hands and in your body, you're seeing the ball. So your most elite athletes have the ability to very specifically channel aggression and energy and they know where failure is. And that sometimes people go, oh, well, I don't want to fail. They embrace the concept of failure as learning, but then also I know the point of diminishing return. I know if I move any faster than what I am, my mechanics start to break apart. My body's not strong enough to hold certain forms or do certain things. And they go up right up to that edge. And then they just live there. And basically, as your body acclimates to that level, you're then able to continue to extend yourself further and further out. And it's a really cool way to play. And once you play that way, you don't want to play any other way. But that is your different, that's your separating factor of they don't fear failure. They embrace it, but they also know where it is, and they know where that line is. Uh, we talk about it with our team of, you know, you can play on the top of a mountain all day if you know where the edge is and you won't fall off because you stay away from the edge. And so most players and most people never find out where that edge is. They are just that person kind of walking through their living room with the lights out trying not to hit the coffee table. They're not sure where anything is. They're just trying not to, to run into something where – your elite athletes, they turn the lights on. They know where everything is, so they can run around and do whatever they want to, and they're never going to bump into anything, and they're never going to fall off the edge. You mentioned the point of failure. I'm actually curious. Uh, we'll take it to a specific pitch. At what point when you're delivering a pitch do you know this is awesome or, oh, no, that's not going to stay in the park? Sometimes it's before you even throw the ball. <laughs> really? It's when you shake the pitch off, Baxter. <laughs> <laughs> No, sometimes, sometimes, obviously, if you don't agree with it, but then you throw it anyway. But sometimes I'll be like halfway through my motion. I'm like, something's not right. Really? Yeah. So it's even before it comes out of your hand. Sometimes, yeah. Other times you throw the ball and you're like, that didn't go where I wanted it to. And there goes the ball. Can, can you testify to that, Coach? Not just from Sydney, but also your own playing days. Oh, yes. There's, it's funny because uh, we spoke about this in the past, and she was just actually motioning. It's like right about here, about that 9 o'clock spot on your arm circle, you're like, this is just not going to turn out well. <laughs> and every pitcher's like, yeah, right there. You're like, you either got it or you don't. <laughs> is there a point where you can kind of abort and just roll it to the plate from that point, or is it too late, you're committed, and it's going to go? The one thing we talk about is your aggression is your kind of your bubble wrap and it's your protection because if you really rip a pitch, you're going to have some spin of some sort and you're going to have at least as much speed as you possibly could put on it. Typically, you'll, you'll throw it wide. 
Um, but every once in a while, you'll kind of get this rise droppy thing that kind of moves funny and the catcher barely grabs it. It's almost like a knuckleball. But it usually doesn't get hit. Where pitchers tend to kind of get in a mess is they feel that it's going to go bad. And human nature is, I don't want to throw it down the middle. So we look down the middle. And as soon as we look down the middle, we throw it right where we're looking and it goes about five miles an hour slower right down the middle. And we're like, oh, no. So we do talk about if you're losing it, at least rip it because you may throw it wide. You may, you know, kind of hit the batter even. You know, I mean, things happen. But um, the last thing you want to do is kind of the, oh, no, and try to, to fix it at that point. You know, on the space shuttle, there's an abort button. You've passed the abort button at this time. You're going to have to ride this one out a little bit. <laughs> Okay. Dr. Coffee, Coach Brown mentioned something really interesting that I wanted to ask you about. She talked about how at the highest level, those players can pitch basically at their max effort or at the 10. How do you do that and sustain it without sustaining an injury? I mean, I think what you see with those elite athletes, and one of the things that makes them really interesting from a biomechanics standpoint, is their ability from a motor control standpoint and from a proprioception standpoint to know where their arm and body is in space um, is really impressive and it's one of the things that really sets kind of elite athletes aside from other individuals like you can have a pitcher who will say hey this is exactly the angle that my arm was at or this is the arm slot that I was in when I was pitching it you could take a high school kid and ask them and they could be like I don't know which, I, I got no clue where my arm was um, and so oftentimes that knowledge of exactly where it's at um, and being able to keep their body in that standpoint is oftentimes helpful to prevent injuries. Um, but there's the other part that the, the body, just like anything else, can wear out. Sure. If you put too much stress on it, it's, it's going to go. Um, and I think we see this with you know, increase in high school sports injuries um, have been increasing over the number of years. And some of it can be from sports specialization. Some of it can be from not proper training. Um, others of it can be from trying to do too much to your body um, and your body doesn't have a chance to recoup. Uh, I think athletes and especially elite athletes that are able to stay healthy know also how to take care of their body. Um, they, know what, you know, they know where those edges are and they know, all right, I gotta back it off. I, you know, I gotta go rest for a few days. You know. I'm not going to pitch at 100% every day, right? That I can go at 100% today. I got to find a way to, you know, let my body heal, get better, and then I can go back at 100% at another point. Um, and I think those elites know, know that routine and know when to do it. This has been a fascinating discussion. I could keep talking for forever about this, but I think we have – really covered a lot of the areas that I wanted to cover. I really appreciate your guys' time coming in, and uh, good luck to you two in the Big South Tournament, and thank you for joining me, Dr. Coffee. Thank you so much. Thank you. you so much. Thanks again to my guests, Dr. Coffee, Coach Brown, and Sydney. Don't forget, you can check out the latest episodes of the podcast on Google Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts, or you can find it at longwoodlancers.com in the Fan Zone section under Podcasts. If you want Longwood Athletics videos, subscribe to Longwood U Lancers on YouTube. Of course, Longwood Athletics is verified on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on the What the Elwood podcast.